Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. If I had stopped at those moments in time when people kept saying, that is not needed, then we would not be here, right? Time would have gone by and I would have been now jumping to be like, let me build this thing that I knew I wanted to build before this crazy point in history and time. But I didn't. I came out of their reality and I stayed in mine. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. The American dream isn't equally accessible to all. Those are the words of visionary entrepreneur Dion Gums, and that is the massive institutional problem she set out to solve with Gen Equity a fintech platform built to remove obstacles that too often prevent women and black business founders from getting the financial tools they need to succeed. She learned the industry from the inside, working for major banks and wealth management groups, including JP Morgan and US Trust. Then she left to do it her own way, starting with pitching her big idea to the Bush Institute, which awarded her Presidential Leadership Scholar in 2018, giving Dion the space and resources to begin building a business plan. Today, Gen Equity is engaged with many companies and partners, including MasterCard and Liberty Tax. Dion continues to refine her product and services based on market needs, but she never loses sight of the larger mission to create more business opportunity for women and people of color. There are lots of lessons to be gleaned from Dion's path out of corporate banking and into entrepreneurship, starting with parents who wanted her to have every opportunity to make a difference in the world. My family is Guyanese. And so Guyana is a small country on the northern tip of South America, but and it's British Guyana. So culturally, we consider ourselves Caribbean because that's what we have, right? We are very close to Trinidad. And so, you know, culturally, we're Caribbean. I, my family moved here. So my mother and I moved to New York, Brooklyn, New York, when I was five years old. My grandmother and great aunt were already here. So they had moved in the 70s, bought a nice little house in Brooklyn. Um, we moved about five or so years later. When I was about five, my mother had been over here because she went to college here. So she went to college at Pace University in New York oh. and then moved back and had me and worked for a few years. And then, and then we moved over here. And then my dad joined us a few years later. So, so do you have any memories from the time in Guyana? Um, I don't have memories from like, you know, childhood stories outside of what people have told me, you yeah. know? So sometimes a memory is, fills itself in mm -hmm. um, because people tell it to you so much that it becomes a story that you think you remember. Sure. But I have gone back, right? You go back for weddings and funerals. You have and family there still? My, on my father's side. So okay. we still have, um, you know, a, an aunt and a few uncles that are, that are still there and have families there. I have not been back in, I don't know, must be 15 or so years. So how does that experience, though, and, you know, immigrating and knowing your parents' experience and all, I mean, how, how does that inform your life, would you say? So I think... One of the things that I think probably informs, I don't know if it's necessarily my life, but kind of the foundation of how I think, why I operate sometimes the way I do, right? I think there's the familial teaching that you grow up with. So we had a ton of people that grew up in our home. We had, you know, five or six families. There were always people in and out of my grandmother's house. So we we lived in Brooklyn, but it we had neighbors that were also family. We had people that were always coming over and needed a place to stay. We had cousins that stayed. 
And what that teaches you, and my grandmother and my great aunt were very, very big on education. So I think one of the things you learn at a very early age is kind of what's the reason that someone who was successful would uproot their lives? <laughs> Why would they uproot their lives, yeah. right? And and start anew someplace. And you're trying to digest that as a kid. And the, the thing that we were told to focus on, family, faith, education, community service, like service to others. and that that tenant is the thing that always kind of those things are the things that always drove me and i think you know my grandmother and my great aunt my great aunt just passed away at 104 oh wow um and good um, genes <laughs> hopefully <Yeah. laughs> may we all be so so blessed and lucky but um but what i think you end up learning is this there's an evolution in cadence to life and legacy right mm. and i think for for those two women, it was all about, we have to get here, we get everyone here, and how can they be the most educated people they can be so that every opportunity is open to them, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I did that. Like, I, I did all of the degrees, I did all of the things. I'm, I actually, I don't think I'm necessarily the best student, but I'm probably one of the more, more curious people that you'll probably encounter, and I will do everything I can to fill in that curiosity. Sure. So that's learning is something that's important, important to me. I think when I say the evolution of legacy, what I mean is for them, it was education. And then with my own kids and my daughter in particular, it's um, the, the legacy of education meets opportunity to then do what? And so that to me is the, the thing that now drives kind of who I am. So taking all of that knowledge, mm -hmm. applying it after over 20 years in business and finance and all of those industries and helping people in multiple different facets. And now bringing that to the space that I'm in, entrepreneurship is something that to me in, is a different kind of evolution of the legacy that I think I want to leave for my kids. Sure, um, sure. There's a more forward-looking component to, I think, what makes me tick. I love that. Did you grow up thinking you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Were you interested in business? I always knew I was going to do business. I mean, you know, my mom, so my, my father's an economist. Okay. And, and my mother was a banker. Mm. And so the language of money was always in our home. So, mm -hmm. you know, we always knew the language of money, but the intent of money was very different. Like, so by language of money, you're not, you're familiar with the terms, you know why you need to have a salary and budget and save and all of that, but it's saving to live. It's not saving to then do other things and experience life. And to me, when I looked around at the other entrepreneurs around me, whether they were street entrepreneurs, right, or established entrepreneurs, I think what you saw were people that were trying to do more than make ends meet. They were trying to create a different kind of life. Mm -hmm. that filter through to more people um, and have more of an experience. And so to me, very early on, I, I kept thinking to myself, at some point, I'll have to amass enough knowledge that, I, that never left me to go off and build something for myself. Hmm. I knew that. I didn't know what it would be. Yeah. But I knew, you know, in my business school essay in 2005, I wrote about, you know, when I turn 45, I'm going to quit this big company that I would have built, mm -hmm. right? Hmm. And I will coach my kids in, on the field hockey field and I will, you know, coach basketball with them and be present and do track and be involved in school, right? And so to me, I knew I would build something that would give me the freedom to experience my world and my kids' world in a different way. Um, and I think I'm on a path to that. So I've got a couple of years. I was going to say, you're- um, Got about 18 months. Wow, pressure's <laughs> on. But but I mean, isn't that interesting that you've really I mean, you you knew where you were headed and you've you've stayed with it. Yeah, I don't know. And again, I don't know that I thought about the path, but I thought about the things that were important to me before I even had my kids. Family, mm -hmm. service to others and, and, and faith and, and legacy. And I knew the only way I could get that, I couldn't get that continuing to work at banks and institutions. I get a lot of money, but I couldn't get the other component of leaving something that my kids could touch, feel, own, and see me do. 
But you felt like it was important that you um, do that step. You you wanted that big bank financial industry experience before starting your own thing. You didn't think I'm going to just get out of uh, my MBA program and go for it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you know a a, a ton of um, Caribbean parents, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But, but there is a lot of like, you get a job uh-huh. and you pay back all of this debt, uh-huh. right? And you keep working and you and you work and you work and you work. I mean, even the notion for my parents for a long time when I'd said, you know, I'm going to start my own company. It was like, mm, <laughs> you know, you know, we'll support whatever you do, but don't give up that good job, you mm-hmm. know? So I think there's a lot of unlearning as well for, for me. Hmm. Um, you know, my parents are are traditional in their professional lives. So sure. they are get a job, keep a job, retire. Yeah. Um, yeah. From from those positions. Before we get too far down the path of your career, I just want to ask, you were a, a, a successful athlete as a child and college student. How did that impact who you were and, and how you approach things? So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of all kids in sports, but particularly girls in sports. And I think... Um, when I went to poly prep, so I went to an independent school in Brooklyn, New York. I, you know, you had to take all of these tests. My parents didn't have a lot of money, but you, I was fortunate enough to get into this program that allowed me to come out of public school and start an independent school. So you, you're kind of living two lives, right? My, you know, home in Brooklyn, and then you go to this really wealthy school with wealthy people, and you have the whole world that's opened up to, up to you. To lacrosse, which I'd never heard of before, mm-hmm. field hockey, which. You know, my parents kept saying, my mom kept saying, you know, I played field hockey. And I was like, well, I've never heard of, you've never mentioned that before, like now. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, field hockey, softball, all of these things. And I think I kind of just dove right in. You know, I'm probably a bit of a renaissance kind of child. I was child in that way. And, and athletics was a way for me to connect with people that maybe I wouldn't have had a natural connection to. So when you play sports... You can let go of a portion of your world in the way of economics don't really matter. The talent on the field and the, and the relationships you build with people around you are what begins to matter. And so sports did that for me. And, you know, and I just, and I excelled and I loved being on a team. Mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it. So I was a three-sport captain. I, you know, we went to state championships. I mean, we did it all in high school. I had a fantastic time. And then when I went to Penn, um, I played field hockey. And um, after a year decided I wanted to run track. I, I have no idea why. They seemed like they were having a ton of fun. Everyone was really fast. I thought I was really fast. I did not run in high school. Hmm. So, I mean, the last time I had stepped on a track was outside of practice was eighth grade. So mm-hmm. now there's, you know, and I did. I, I made the team. The coach um, was a big part of that, Betty Costanza. Um, and it, it, it shaped really Penn Athletics and those women and, and those coaches probably shaped the next, you know, 10 plus years of my life. We're still deeply in contact with them. I'm still a part of the university. I mentor student athletes. I'm on the sports board. I'm a huge proponent of what sports can do for young girls. And and what what is that? What what do you think sports do for young girls? So the, there's a confidence that happens when you can see yourself winning through effort, mm-hmm. and I think the development of a, a skill, the no, notion of I'm not good at this, but if I practice, I can get better, is a bit different than if I read more, I can become a better reader or mm-hmm. a fast. It's a, it's just a different muscle, and you can see it more instantly, and I think. I think particularly for young girls and young girls of color to be able to participate in athletics opens so many other kinds of doors that maybe would not be open to you. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Penn is an Ivy League institution and you don't necessarily get scholarships in the Ivy League, but a brown girl from Brooklyn that's really good playing field hockey got a really interesting opportunity at the University of Pennsylvania. So you started your career in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Working in big financial institutions. I started my career in Pennsylvania. Okay, in Pennsylvania. Sorry. Yeah. Um, where, where did you start? So I started at um, SEI Investments, which is an asset management firm in Oaks, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb, one of the suburbs of Pennsylvania near, near King of Prussia Mall. And I passed up 
my investment banking offers to take that job at SEI. Why? Because one of the their recruiting tenants was we allow younger people early in their career to take on as much responsibility that as they can handle. Mm. So it was a little bit of a white space <laughs> um, move so that it was, I think you were called a marketing analyst or associate or something, something like that. But you can essentially, the harder, as hard as you wanted to work, you can build something, you can create something, you can take ownership. So you sort of had that mindset and that uh, entrepreneurial spirit even yeah. then. Do you feel like you were there just to, to learn to soak it all up, pay off debt, and and then go out and do your thing? I mean, was that always in the back of your mind? No. I You know, I just, I always think that in those early days, it was just about collecting experiences. Mm -hmm. And it was, I always knew what investment banking would look like. So if I wanted to go back, I could be in a rotational program and work 120 hours a week and sleep at my desk and do all of those fun things. I had friends that were doing that. But this was a chance for me to try something else, flex a different muscle and, and itch and probably get further ahead in terms of what I could absorb. To my own capacity was the only limitation versus the structure of the rotational program and do I have to be mm -hmm. looking at Excel documents and churning through reports. That appealed to me a bit more than the other. And I never thought I would work for, so I didn't get paid a ton of money. I actually also, I worked two other jobs. After I left SEI, I went to work at a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. So a very, really prominent hedge fund, probably one of the best places I've ever worked, run by a gentleman, Steve Mandel. So Lone Pine Capital in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I commuted from Brooklyn to Greenwich every day. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, that was my first kind of foray into directly understanding, not just asset management, which was the company I was at before and technology, but really, what does it take to evaluate a company? How do you relay that information back to clients? How do you build and grow a, a fund? Mm -hmm. So fundraising, managing clients, investor relations on a really lean team. So billions of dollars run very smartly. And it was just a lesson, not just in, for me, entrepreneurship. The founders were still at the company doing everything, kind of an all hands on deck. So great lesson in entrepreneurship, great lesson in humility, great lesson in really what it means to just treat your employees and people the right way, mm -hmm. no matter what their titles were. And just understanding, you know, that's when I said I want to go to business school. Okay. And said, you know, I think I want to build a hedge fund. You know, what would that ah. look like? And, and you know, the, the thought was, yeah, go back to school and learn the mechanics of what it means to, you know, evaluate a, a company. So when you got out of business school, where did you go next? 2008, mm -hmm. market. Well, we all know mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. So my offers uh, that I had, one was Lehman Brothers. Oh. And Lehman started taking back some of their asset management offers in 2007. Uh-huh. And so mm, now what do we do, right? Yeah. And so I was already in the process of interviewing with J.P. Morgan for their management rotational program. And so this was a really elite management rotational program in a certain part of the business. And it was, well, this is kind of what I'm going to do. And, you know, we got to meet. So we got to sit down with Jamie Dimon. We got to do all of the wonderful things. And I ended up at J.P. Morgan in 2000, graduating business school. So 07, 2008, nine, went to San Francisco. The world was falling apart, wow. right? Back to New York. Yeah. Um, and that was its own interesting experience. If, if you can recall um, the you of those days, were you noticing inequities and thinking about, you know, challenges and, and some of the things that are now the, the pillars of gen equity? Were, were, were there... You know, were the seeds being planted in those days? The seeds of gen equity came when we moved back to New York. You know, when I got back, when we moved back to New York and after I had my daughter, I was in the asset management world, managing clients. I always do think about 2008 of, as a somewhat of a um, awakening of what was happening in other parts of the financial world outside of the seat I was sitting in. And you know, I was in San Francisco volunteering at small businesses and, and businesses just as part of like, I need to always 
be busy, right? <laughs> it was just, it's always just a great way to get to know a place, to extend yourself. And many of those businesses were Black-owned businesses in communities that outside of even Oakland, like I think people think Oakland, and you just saw what people had to do to just survive because we're in a recession. Mm -hmm. And so I kept saying to myself, and I remember telling Alex was my fiance then, but I mean, you'd be amazed at what people are doing with like no bank loan. Hmm. They just can't get anything out of the banks um, for obvious reasons. And and then this data and storylines started to play out as we, you know, the bailouts happened and all of that. And that was a, well, at some point I'm going to be doing something here. Mm. I don't know what yet, right? I never knew what. Okay. At some point, this notion of where the world is going, where population trends are going, who keeps doing more, who keeps having less, some, there's something there. I yeah. don't know what. Did you did you take notes? Did you start, you know, I mean, at what point did you say I need to start really thinking about what this could be? I take a lot. I have notebooks, right? So yeah. I still write. I write everything down, every thought. I have notebooks at the side of my bed. That's just, I've always been that person. Mm -hmm. I never knew what it would be specifically. A friend of mine and I started a company. We, what we wanted to do was create more female investors, right? So we started a company called Wealth Thrive. That in was in what year? 2012. And did you 13. leave? Did you leave your day job to nope. do that? I've that never left. Yeah. Your, par your parents were in your head. <laughs> and it now had I to had be a, a child. Oh, my God. <laughs> had to be a side oh, hustle. Yeah. So yeah. that was like your what? Midnight to 2 a.m. shift? Or how did yeah. you do it? Yeah. I had I had Skylar. Alex, you know, worked a lot. Um, we're in New York in our little apartment. And yeah, I mean, carve out time in my in my evening, really to work on this business with another business school friend of ours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what was so so Wealth Thrive was going to be an investment fund? It was going to be an investment platform where okay. we brought together um you know female investors and those that wanted to be female investors with knowledge, capital and companies, right? That okay. they could invest in because what we kept seeing was it gosh there's a ton of money out there and there are a lot of women Mid, mid career, later stage, whatever it was, that wanted to invest outside of their traditional portfolios, what they would have their broker with. They want to invest in companies and, and, and create a different kind of conversation that maybe their husbands were having or whoever. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's bridge that gap. And we pitched this idea around to a, a lot of companies that it's interesting now that said, you know, the female market isn't really a market. Mm. Oh my God. So, yeah. right? Lo wow. And behold, How do you respond to that? Like, here we are. Well, you know, you, you, we just kept going. Yeah. We kept going. We ultimately, we eventually, you know, ran out, of, ran out of money and circumstances changed and both kind of went on to do other things. How, but, how long did you stick with Wealth Thrive? Two years. Okay. Yeah. And um, was that, I mean, you know, everybody always says you learn more from the failures than you do from the successes. What, what did you take away from that? And, and was, it, was it hard? I mean, were you surprised that it didn't take off? I'm, I'm always surprised when I don't like win something. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Is that a terrible thing to say? No. Um, or, or when I don't have success at something, maybe yeah. not necessarily win. That's probably not the right term. And so I think sometimes things can be, so my, my lesson was sometimes something can be so obvious to you that you want it to be obvious to other people, but your job many times as an early stage entrepreneur is to not just build a great product or bang the message against the wall. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. But, um, how do you communicate and relay that in a way that makes sense to the people that you need to bring on board? And I think, you know, and I was in sales, so it's not like I didn't know this, but the mission was so different. It's always different when it's yours. Mm -hmm. And it was just, but all the reports are telling you this and you're right. seeing what your clients are spending and the power of the purse and all of these things. And it was just, I think I've had to come out of, um, a position where I'm shocked because what I what, what that does it is it limits what you're able to do mm -hmm. if you it, it stagnates you right if you're constantly looking around being like oh my goodness why don't you get it right, right. <laughs> what is wrong yeah um 
because you're living in someone else's reality. And at a certain point, you have to come out of that vortex of mm -hmm. their reality and you have to step right back into what got you to where you where you decided you wanted to be, because it is a decision. Yes. And then get back on track to, and now I'm going to go. So where did she go? That's coming up after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best and Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best and Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Dion's first entrepreneurial venture didn't take off in the way she'd hoped. What's next? Let's find out. I went back to work. Okay, I was going to say, I, given, given your upbringing, was it like, I'm just going to stay over here with my oh, full-time job and benefits? Yeah, um, we moved to D.C. Um, again, for, for, for Medtronics, we moved to D.C. That's for, for your husband's yep, job. Okay. For my husband's job. And we um, really loved it there. I was at Bank of, I transferred over to Bank of America, their U.S. trust umbrella, which is their private help, private bank, dealing with, you know, high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, specifically business owners. So the, a different kind of lens into not just what does it take to build a company, but the challenges that they have in, in banking, getting lending and capital, no matter what size. So imagine someone that is $100 million and just sold their company mm -hmm. in net worth and still trying to um, navigate a, a big financial institution to get credit. Hmm. So if you extrapolate that and they can tell a story of how they got there. Oh, well, it's been like this every single time, right? So, and then talking to the small business bankers and understanding, well, some of my clients are having the same pain points that your big clients are having. And, you know, and ultimately just trying to figure out, well, what's the solution here? Mm -hmm. And I've always been focused on the women's space, women-owned businesses, the businesses that don't look like, where owners don't look like traditional business owners that we usually would see. So, sure. um and trying to build verticals within a big bank that says we should focus. These people have different needs. If you're a working mother <laughs> mm -hmm. that owns a company, your needs are different than if you are a not a working mother, right? right? They're just different. And so how do we cater down to the lifestyle of the business owner so that they were able to connect the financial need of the business to who they are? Did you try to get that message across within the institution? Yes. <laughs> How so, did that go? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, another lesson. Build what you can until you can't build it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I probably, and I mentioned, I, I don't live in someone else's space in reality for, for too long. Um, it, it's just stunting to me personally, and it's draining. And, you know, I was able to do a lot of wonderful things within the walls of, of B of A and U.S. Trust. and build great partnerships for the company around around the country and great programs with marketing and all these other things and, and on behalf of clients. But ultimately, when we decided to move here, I just knew that it was time to like, it was just time. Okay. It was so, time. So um, we can thank Medtronic for bringing <laughs> your family here and for being the moment while your husband went to work at headquarters, you decided I'm going to pursue my own thing. We can thank um, Logan, my son, because he was born here and pregnant and moving to Minnesota and having a win your first winter come upon you. I just knew that if there was going to be a time where I was going to challenge myself, like my natural urge... <laughs> To like have a job, yeah. Um, um, that this was that time. I just like I just knew, and I had something in various forms in various notebooks where I just knew that the thing I wanted to solve was how can we create more opportunity for for businesses, business owners to grow past that one two million dollar mark. How? What are we gonna do? 
<laughs> to do that. And I knew that I needed it to be a focus on women led businesses. And I knew I needed it to be on, you know, black owned and minority businesses. I just knew that because I know what that impact looks like in community. I'm from those communities. Yeah. Um, I just, again, I didn't know what, but I knew that was who I wanted to help. And I knew the space of which I wanted to occupy. And I knew the technology could help me get there. So I didn't want to start a, a, a venture fund. I didn't, want, I didn't want to do all of those things. Okay. I wanted to build a scalable business that, okay. could, that I could take anywhere and help people around the world once it got to scale. So it's a big, broad idea. Mm-hmm. How did you start? What did you do next? Oh, goodness. So I got into this um, Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, which is a collaboration between four presidential centers, uh, you know, President Bush, both President Bushes, President Clinton and the LBJ Foundation. And that's this bipartisan program that allows you to come up with an idea um, and could be part of your day job, could be not, but come up with an idea and figure out over the course of six months what you can do to get that get that going. And Logan was just born, so had a C-section with Logan. It's born in January. And your daughter is how old at this point? How old is she? They're six years apart. Okay. So Logan is just born. He's two weeks old. I get into the program. <laughs> Great timing. Awesome. And I know I can't pass it up. Yeah. I mean, I could, but that's not who I am. So, yeah. And I jump on a plane. I start meeting these people in D.C., C-section, all of it. So, and I started talking to people about, you know, well, if you own a company, what does it look and feel like? And, you know, I'm thinking about this thing, right? No name, no nothing. And people were just like, oh, that's really interesting. I talked to this person in banking, talked to this person in tech, talked to this person in lending, talked. And the idea uh, just kind of started formulating. I'm curious, the other people that you were encountering in those circles, were they at the same sort of stage? Was it, was it about big ideas and then how to execute? Or were they more like, this is my business, here's what we do? It's make. different. So, you know, the cohorts, 59 people in my cohort, and they run from CEOs of big hospital systems um, to people in politics, to senators, to, you know, mm-hmm business owners to venture fund folks. I mean, it's a, it's a wide array of talent and people are mid-career and up. Yeah. So mid to mid-late career and up. And some of the projects that some people were working on were directly related to their jobs. So health equity and, you know, and some were offshoots of just passion projects mm-hmm. that they wanted, they wanted to see, to see through. So. You are a person who exudes confidence, and I feel like you 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 kind of need that to take a big, grand idea into a into those rooms and not feel at all intimidated when you don't have you know you you didn't have like a specific business plan at that point. No, <laughs> I had just a here's what I'm thinking. Yeah, but I think you you make room for perspectives within reason, and I think if you're Trying to form, if you're trying to, if you have a problem you want to solve, and I knew I, there was a, this was the problem I want to solve. And I'm not sure how to do it. And then it was just now information gathering, plus my own research, plus whatever, my own networks outside of the program. And, and it started as I'm going to do this one thing with gen equity. And it ultimately has become something else, become even bigger (laughs) than what I envisioned it, it would be. How and so? So initially, it was, gen equity was going to really be about how do we use technology to streamline capital, the flow of money to businesses at different points of their growth cycle. And how are we going to use technology to do that? And why did you feel that technology was the key? I mean, banks have their own technology platforms. Why did you think something separate was needed? So banks have their own technology platforms, <laughs> yes, where um, one arm sometimes doesn't talk to the other arm. And mm-hmm. all of those things that when you operate in silos create friction for the people that you're ultimately serving. So there's internal friction. Your employees are like, I'm trying to get this loan through and it's 10 different workflow processes. And on the back end, the person, the business owner, let's say, trying to get that capital that may have needed it on March 1, 
now has to wait until April 30th. So 60 days have gone by and they might get a no. Mm-hmm. Th- those are functions of internal technology gaps that, w- that, that exist within banks. Big banks can do a better job now. So, you know, there some wonderful banks are spending a ton of money in doubling down on technology. JP Morgan, big, huge tech budget because they un- he understands, Jamie Dimon understands where technology can take the bank and how it actually gives him back, gives back to his bottom line when done correctly. But if you're a community bank or a regional bank and you've been operating on the same system, you don't have this quick flow of tech change because you've never really had to. And then what happened? 2020. Mm-hmm. We hit a pandemic where everyone goes inside, no one's coming to your branch, and you have to figure out how, to, how are you going to help all of these people? Right. And so, yes, they, everybody's got technology, but l- old legacy technology doesn't help the new customer. The new customer, business customer, that's, that sits at Netflix every day, and t- <laughs> which tells them what they want to watch. Mm-hmm. But when they come to you, it's fill out this paper or do this thing or, I mean, set up your account, but let me call you first. All of these things where they're used to this real-time information, even into their own business, they cannot get. Mm-hmm. So that's the gap that we're trying to fill. We, don't, we want to accelerate what companies can do when you remove those friction points. Some of those exist within banks. Some of those exist even on the side of the business owner. So initially, were you going to be kind of a, a middleman of sorts? I mean, were, were you going to be a, a lender or a platform to get people to the right places more efficiently? A platform to get people to the right places more efficiently. Okay. We, um, we knew, and probably because I've worked in the industry, the notion of like owning your own balance sheet yeah. is just it, regulatory hurdles. Hard to start a oh, bank. Yeah. Right. All of that. Um, and, you know, when we, I kept saying we're going to be our own banking institution, it was always a uh, what's called a uh, challenger bank. It's a digital bank where you have a bank behind you and you own all of the front end interface process, but you don't do that balance sheet messiness. You leave that in the regulatory environment that mm-hmm. it is. Um, and that vision even, that vision changed in the, during the pandemic. So that was my next question. Mm-hmm. Was it the pandemic that, that shifted or expanded the focus of gen equity? Yes, because that's where we started seeing where it was amplified. So going back to your earlier point of you're banging your head against the wall saying, do you not see this? Yeah. And everyone's like, nope, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hits and everyone's like, oh, my goodness. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we started getting other institutions reaching out, talking to us, saying, hey, this thing you're thinking of building, can you do it for us? And so it became a bit less about us being our own great, awesome digital banking platform. But how do we become also an enabler? How do we become an enabler of better technology and access to financial services by helping Banks that need that already are in the business of doing that do it better. I see, and 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 that changed during the pandemic, and it really blew what we thought we could build and who we thought we could be out of the water. So, were you creating like white labeled products for for different banks, or was it? We have one. We have a core that we own. So, the big shift for us is we started looking at data. And why, yes, silos are one thing, but when you actually are thinking about a a business, what are you actually able to see? And what are you not able to see? What's the business owner able to see and react to? And what are they not able to see? And we found a gap in the market. We found a gap between banking data and all forms of accounting and financial invoicing data. And we said, let's build an infrastructure right in the middle where the flow of data and information widens the scope of what a business actually looks like versus mm. what companies look at right now. Mm-hmm. These are the five factors. Do you get a loan? Yes or no. These are the things. Yes or no. 
when businesses really are thinking about who are my customers, when can I pay them, what, you know, if I'm a seasonal business, what does that look like? All of those decision-making things still flow off of one data pool, but they're not in line with each other. One side doesn't see what the other side is seeing. One side is able to make decisions and one side isn't. So what if we build something that streamlined all of that for the benefit of both parties, but mainly for the benefit of the business owner? Okay. And so we don't build any financial products. We build, we've created this core engine. We've created this proprietary AI, artificially intelligent machine learning, predictive tool that allows you to do cash flow management, all of these things. But it's that integral algorithm that runs through what we do. That's the core of gen equity. And then everyone else can, we will enable others to build the right products to push out to people off of that. So, so that's kind of the, that's really the big shift for us. How many um, institutions are, and individuals are you working with today? We had this great partnership with, with MasterCard that we were able to be a part of their StartPath program last year. So we're top 2% of companies, startups globally, that were able to be, be a part of um, their corporate accelerator. And what that allowed us to do is to start building partnerships with other financial institutions, which we're currently doing. So we have some regional banks that we're talking to here, but all through using MasterCard's platform and their teams, and of course, through some of our own relationship building. And that pipeline continues to build and grow. So we're currently, right now, we are working with organizations where we're saying, why don't you, to the, when we get to the point where we have the enterprise-ready version of Gen Equity, sure, you'll be able to plug in and do that. But right now, why don't you offer this as a service to your customers mm-hmm. so they have better insights? So they know when the, the, the tool tells them when they are going to need working capital. And they're going to be able to hit get funding and it's going to come directly to your banker. So that's kind of that's the flow that we're in right now in the product road mapping cycle. So you can build the, the technology, build the platform. How do you make sure that it is getting to or being used by the right people? So by right people, I'm assuming you mean small business owners? Well, yes. I mean, by getting back to your mission of, right. of making, you know, making it more equitable and, and accessible. So our, the way we've gone to market, our go-to-market strategy is really built around, you know, getting this technology into the hands of women business owners. So partnering with organizations that already, and, and CFOs and fractional CFOs, where that's part of their clientele. We also, for example, as it pertains to Black-owned businesses, so we've partnered with Liberty Tax franchises in the Northeast where they sit in community. So we're making sure that the technology gets rolled out directly to the populations that we're serving. So those are the ways that we build partnerships and target. And we know that, of course, all small businesses can benefit from gen equity. We know that. But this initial phase is really about How are we building and measuring and tracking how more women-owned businesses get our technology? What are they going to be doing with it? How are they going to be using it? And how more um, third-party providers and partners that are in communities that we actually care about right now and want to see excel and succeed through the use of digital services, how are we allowing our technology to be deployed through there? So we have this kind of Mm one-to-many business model, of course, right? You can download on the app store and all of that. But our strategy, our go-to-market strategy is really partnership-based so that we make sure that we're, tr- we're being strategic about touching those people. And is that, that partnership, is that how you make money? We don't make money directly through the, par- so we have four sources of revenue. If you, this is a, a revenue yeah, generating let's conversation. Let's do it. Yeah. So we have four sources of revenue. This first um, iteration of Gen Equity is a non-premium version, right? So it's free. One of the ways that we will make revenue is through the premium. So we have a SaaS, SaaS model of making revenue. We get a spread off of our lending fees through partners. So people, our partners, if people use our partners to borrow capital, bank or, banks or otherwise, we get a fee off of that. So lending revenue. Then there's a fee for service with banks, licensing, licensing fee that we also will get from, from banking partners. And then the next iteration of what we're building is what's called transaction revenue, so interchange fee, where we are working with a payments partner right now and 
will get a spread off of the, the payments. So kind of four sources of revenue all built into the application is where we're heading. Quick question about the the building of all of this. It takes money to build software. This mm-hmm. is detailed and involved. Um, you don't do that work yourself. How did you How did you get it made? Uh, we have a technology team. So I've gone through. Here's another lesson. Um, we were really scrappy in the beginning, and we hired teams based on unique need and affordability. And then once we we're accepting into the MasterCard program. Essentially, I let go of everyone, to mm. put it nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because we had a different level of security, scrutiny. We are now playing essentially with the big boys and girls, and we needed to position ourselves as a partner that a large global payments company like MasterCard would want to work with, which means everything had to be rebuilt from the ground up. Mm. So the delay in our product cycle is really that. We hired, took some time, but finally hired um, technology teams, some global, some here in the United States, and that's who's been building our product. And have you raised money? We raised some money from a few angel investors, and we've been kind of going mainly off of personal capital and, and some of that money. So I've put a lot of our personal money into the business. <laughs> how, how do you how do you make that decision? I mean, you obviously know a thing or two about money, but I mean, did you decide up front, this is the amount that I'm willing to put in and I can't go over that? Because I think there's this kind of slippery slope, especially when you believe mm-hmm. in the mission. Mm-hmm. It just needs a little more. I got to put a little more. It always more needs a little more. Right? <laughs> it always needs a little more. But look, I, I'm a big budget conscious person. It's just part of my DNA. Mm-hmm. And my, I, I think many people probably are like, let, okay, Dion started a company, but l- let's see. In the beginning, it was really, let's see if she's going to be able to quit her job and do this full time. Done. Check. And then let's see how long she does it for before she starts itching to go back to work and like oh. making money. Um, and I haven't because to your point. Everything to me comes down to the, the, the budget and forecast. It's just how I, I, it's how I run our household budget. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't say, is this the amount that I'm willing to go over or not? Because tech build, you're always going to go over. But I could say, how much can our household withstand and do before we actually need to go raise outside capital? Mm-hmm. And that's why we, we had, I always had people that were saying, hey, you know, are you looking to raise? How can we contribute and help? And it wasn't until um, late last year that I finally said, okay, let's, let's get a little bit of money in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll go on a bigger, fu- fundraising takes up a lot of time. Yeah. So, you know, we'll go on an official fundraising in a, in a bit. <laughs> okay. Right. But you have enough um, feedback and enough affirmation at this point that you're on the right track. Yeah. And, yeah. and that financial institutions want this and yeah, want I mean, to work with you. We have feedback that financial institutions want to work with us. We have feedback that, you know, fractional CFOs want to work with us. So we have feedback that bookkeepers want their clients to work with us to make their lives easier. We have feedback that small business owners, and when I say small, I don't mean the, you know, kind of um, $50,000 a year business, but, you know, three to 500, 200-ish, 250, and growing or thinking, this is really relevant to me. It's going to make my life. It's going to give me back those hours Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I tend to not have. They want to work with us. And so now it's just a matter of it's time to raise capital, but let's keep going in as lean a way as we possibly can until we are able to pick our heads up and pause and fundraise because mm-hmm. that's what fundraising is. I mean, it's really a pause in the business cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think right now Gen Equity is doing or has done better than others? What What is the unique proposition or problem that you're solving that that the financial industry couldn't before you? So it's a good question. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily a that they couldn't. I think they're. Uh, so many great startups that I respect and, and fintech companies that I respect that are doing great work to tackle the problem problems, the financial management problems that small businesses and small business owners have. 
and that banks have in solving this market because it's so wide, it's so big. But I think to put a stake in the ground and say, we don't need to be everything to everyone. We want to make sure that the growing portion of the population that starts businesses at the fastest rate in this country are able to sustain those businesses, mm-hmm. right? People have not put a stake in the ground on that because everyone wants to be, be we, when you cater to VCs for the most part, you want to, you don't, you tend to think that the market of women and diverse owners is really smaller than it is. It's huge. 16 million businesses out of the 33 million in this country. to a little over 50%. Hmm. Um, they're, just, they're just not getting the big money. They're not getting the big money and they're not getting the infrastructure and then in certain parts. So there's a lot within that space, but it's such a big market. And we want to make sure that we're not just doing technology solutions for that. So I think what's different is it's not just about the tech and it's not just about the bank product. It's about the voice that's behind the people that we want to serve. And that is different because that voice typically has been muted. It has been, oh, you're just a side hustle or, oh, you're just a this. No, these are businesses that are focused on growing, creating great products mm-hmm. for the markets and communities they live in and for their families and for everything else. And they're not just small side hustle things. There's a market for freelancers. They're not just that. They're really great sustaining companies. Let's listen to those voices and let's hone in on what those people specifically need. It goes beyond the technology. It's the voice that informs informs the tech. What do you hear or what do you see that that gives you, you know, kind of the confidence that, wow, you're you're on the right track. You're making a difference. Um, I know that, you know, people always say that representation matters and that can fall on on deaf ears to some extent, but I think there's something special about a, you know, a, a black woman that's charting a different kind of path, a fintech path. I mean, I, we don't see a lot of people in that space. And I think whether people understand <laughs> what we're trying to do or not, I think there's a belief that she's listening to us. She's going to get it done. Mm-hmm. That's exciting for people in general. And so that there's a confidence that comes behind that because it's not just me. There's the, you know, the other invisible people that you, the cloak that you're, that's coming behind you, right, of, of people and voice and community. So I think that that's kind of important. That's the thing that's probably excited more people than any technology. I mean, most people are like, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But you're building this brand you're incorporating things that are important to me. You're thinking about how th- my life is going to be easier as a woman of color, as a mother, as a immigrant, as whatever. You're you're kind of trying to put the pieces together mm-hmm. in a in a place where I've probably felt a bit unheard before, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's important. You were doing this work prior to the pandemic, prior to George Floyd, prior to the, you know, the, the civil unrest mm-hmm. and this kind of racial, you know, a- awakening, a reckoning, if, mm-hmm. you, if you will, um, it, that's got to f- be feel in- interesting timing. Like, talk, <laughs> talk about that a, a little bit. Is it, is it just sort of more proof that this is needed or, or has the reception to gen equity changed? The reception to gen equity has changed. I think, you know, pre-pandemic and, and pre-George Floyd, there was so much push, pushback on, is this really needed? Doesn't mm-hmm. everyone have the same access? Yeah. Can everyone get the same thing? I think your earlier point was, don't banks have their own technology? I mean, all yeah. of these things, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, and they're real things that people see in the, sure. in, in the market. But something got amplified. And then I didn't need to say it anymore. Mm. The story played itself out. Mm-hmm. And so you'd asked a question earlier about timing. Yeah. And sometimes I mentioned if I had stopped at those moments in time when people kept saying that is not needed, then we would not be here. Mm-hmm. Right. Time would have gone by and I would have been now jumping to be like, let me build this thing that I knew I wanted to build before this crazy point in history and time. Yeah. But I didn't. I came out of the, their reality and I stayed in mine. And I think that that's the importance of. Is there a time 
maybe it's a time of when we take off and when and who hears it, but that time to build and and refine and all of that kept going. Yeah. Because we were sitting talking to those people and we knew, we knew, we knew, we knew. Right. And just believing in yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, so what does the next year look like for, for you and Gen Equity? What does the next five years look like? Oh, five years. What did I say <laughs> I needed to retire? Um, um, you know, my... I keep talking about my kids, but I talk to my daughter in, in particular in particular in a lot of conversations because, you know, Skylar drives many things that I, that I do, believe it or not. I believe it. Um, yeah, she, she's, she, I work for her, um, really. <laughs> um, and I don't know what the next five years, I think in general, I always think, I always thought I would, you know, be ringing the bell and taking this company public. Mm. Um, but I also know that I really enjoy private ownership, right? I enjoy enjoy that, and I can ring the stock exchange in some other forum. I think that having Gen Equity be this this force and and voice with multiple stakeholders involved in our financial ecosystem, the new digital financial ecosystem for small businesses, is bigger than any tech that I think we can build. Mm-hmm. Like I, it, it, that's the thing. Like in five years, if I looked up and I said, you know, the SBA is using Gen Equity's technology, right? And, um, you know, the government is using Gen Equity's technology to help small business owners and in cities, um, and we're already down some of these paths. And we're able to measure and metric the impact in community through your technology. That will have trumped any ringing of the stock exchange bell Hmm. because that's what impact means. And I think that's what legacy, that's a thing I can leave to my kids that the the money and the impact and all that will have, would have happened. Yeah. So in five years, that's what I hope. I mean, I think for a while we will be a private company. We're going to read, we're going to go off. We're going to raise a ton of money. The valuations are high. That's going to all be great. That's the thing I think about the most, right? I think about before Skylar leaves my home and I follow her off to college, <laughs> stalk her. Let me know how um, that goes. Right. Um, you know, what will I have built? Yeah. That, and, and she, she looks, you know, she looks at the website. She what, what does she understand about, what, what would she tell oh, me Gen Equity is? She would say Gen Equity, she's written it down. So she created a little poster. She's in fourth grade, right? She's in fourth grade and she is the, she has, she's given herself a title, the chief creative officer. That's her title that Lovely. she's given herself. And she she's written down that Gen Equity is a technology company that helps small businesses to do more things better. Okay. That's what she's written. We have a little paper. She's created. I might little, steal that. Yeah, that's, that's good. I'm going to use that it, in the intro. That's her thing. <laughs> our, you can thank our chief creative officer that is very upset that she's not in our pres- in our pitch deck oh. um, um, because of that. But- that's what I'm thinking about, right? In five years, would I have built something that my daughter can have a hand in? She mm-hmm. already says she's proud of me, but she doesn't really understand because she's 10. But at mm-hmm. 15, she'll get it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the important thing, right? Yeah. Because that means that I'm on a path to leaving something for our family and elevating anything we could have thought we would have ever built and done and changed many, many lives in the process, right? That's that's what we're trying to do. I, I think that's something you could feel pretty good about. You could you could retire so. <laughs> then. Thank you for for sharing so many important lessons with us. There's a lot to take away from this one. Well, thank you. I really appreciate all of the time, yeah. and um, you know, happy to do it again. And Let's chat. keep talking. <laughs> we will keep talking for sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, Dion's story in in all of the steps of her journey are so inspiring and obviously continuing to evolve and we look forward to following along. But for some more perspective on on what she's doing and that entrepreneurial journey, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where Laura Dunham is the Associate Dean. Thank you so much for joining us, Dean Dunham. Well, I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Allison. Um, I thought that you would um, take a, a, a lot of um, enjoyment out of hearing the, you can just feel the, the journey or along for the ride as Dion explains all the different steps in, in her path. How did you see it as somebody who teaches entrepreneurship? 
Oh, I loved hearing her story because it is exactly um, the way entrepreneurs pursue opportunities. I think there's this myth that entrepreneurs have to uh, sort of come out the chute with the, the big idea already figured out. Then they have to go and raise money, you know, millions of dollars, and then they start a business. And, and that's just a hugely daunting prospect to most people. And it's also not the way real entrepreneurs work. So um, I love that. At St. Thomas, we always tell our students, entrepreneurship is about solving problems that matter to you and creating value for others. So if you think it's about having the big idea and making a lot of money right away, that's not what it is. It's about finding that thing that's meaningful to you, that you'll be passionate and creative about learning around and solving uh, for and, and, and then delivering that in a way that's always mindful of, of who you're creating value for. Well, and that's exactly what she's doing. And, and speaking of the, the group that she is specifically focusing on and trying to give voice to, you know, the, the process of going through getting money, which we know is still so fraught for women yeah. and minorities. It's something we've been talking more about, but a lot of work still needs to be done in that space. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting you know, the space that she has chosen and the way she's chosen to create value for women and black and brown entrepreneurs. Obviously, when you talk about this in, in the interview, since the murder of George Floyd and the social unrest that really spread across the country, a, a lot of conversation has been had about the need to change um, the sort of opportunity structure for, mm -hmm. for women and, and, and people of color who want to start and grow businesses. And, and why is that important? Because business ownership, along with home ownership, is one of the best paths for creating wealth for yourself, for your family, for future generations. We know that women and black and brown entrepreneurs are underrepresented in terms of uh, how many businesses they start and grow. Mm -hmm. And sadly, there's tons of empirical data that shows part of the reason for that is that they are treated very unequally with regard to access to capital. You know, they go into banks and they are discouraged from loans at higher rates. They're given less information about loans. A black entrepreneur and a white entrepreneur with the same credit score and in similar opportunity spaces, the black entrepreneur will get declined more frequently, will get lower loan amounts and also face significantly less attractive terms. So we know that's been happening. That's been happening for years. And still happening today. Sadly, yes. Uh, you know, I came across a study uh, that was just done during COVID while we're having all these conversations about inequity mm -hmm. in this processes by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, who actually went in um, and, and tested banks uh, in the Los Angeles area uh, with regard to how they treated different kinds of entrepreneurs and business owners who were seeking to access those PPP loans that were so vital to survival for so many small businesses. And, you know, the same forces were still in play. Hmm. They were discouraged, not given information, not given the loans. So sadly, that's not changing. Now, as you know, there's a lot of people committing to put more money to supporting entrepreneurs of color and women. The fabulous Paul Campbell and mm -hmm. the Brown Venture Group, which is targeting BIPOC entrepreneurs. I know Greater MSP and our, you know, St. Thomas's good friends and partners generator are announcing a $50 million equity fund to target black and brown entrepreneurs. Banks, U.S. Bank has mm -hmm. have committed to setting aside more money for, for grants and loans. However, it is still a daunting prospect for many women and people of color to go into the bank and navigate that system, given what we know, right. to actually access those funds. So I think it's really wonderful that you know, she is thinking about how do I make that easier and more effective for businesses? You know, How do I help them manage their business finance better, get a better handle on the cash that they do need, being able to project their cash flow needs and, and, and really have the information about their finances that will be helpful. And then having that infrastructure in place, that platform, that technology that will help them navigate the bank's internal systems right. much more effectively and efficiently. So, so that is, that's a vital piece of the puzzle, right? You know, the money supposedly is now out there, but now let's make sure that all women and minority owned, minority business owners can actually navigate 
those processes and those loan officers and, and, and banks more effectively. Absolutely. Well, I can't think of a, a person in a better position to do that than someone like Dion with her experience. And, and like she says, you know, I mean, representation is, is, a, big, is a big piece of this. And just seeing a, a woman of color um, who is now a, a fintech entrepreneur goes a long way towards building confidence and opportunity. Absolutely. Well, Laura Dunham, thank you as always for your perspective. It, it adds a lot to the conversation. We really appreciate you being part of the show. Well, happy to be here. Thanks, Allison. Absolutely. And thank you for listening to By All Means. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find past episodes along with expert insights from many professors at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you again to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. And thank you for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Music